Amen. It's good to worship with you, those of you here, and also those of you joining online, even separated by miles. We're still part of this family thing here, and I just love worshiping with you all together. If you've been with us these last few weeks, you know that we've been tackling the parables. We're calling this series The Gospel and Twelve Stories because it's this amazing truth about Jesus is as he got closer to the end of his life, he didn't just start dumping doctrine and statements on his followers. He actually started telling these stories, and it's such an unexpected move, in my opinion, that we just need to kind of let those stories sit in our minds and sit in our hearts for a little bit. And so today, we're going to look at a story from Luke chapter 16. You can find your way there. I've been thinking about the story for a few weeks, and I'll be honest with you. There's something about the story. It's a story of repentance and like what it takes to repent or what motivates repentance, that sort of thing. And there's something about the story that triggered in me like an old insecurity, something I hadn't thought about in years, but apparently it's still there. Um, Like when I was younger, um, I used to be insecure about my testimony. You know what that is? Like your testimony is like the story of how you found Jesus. And I used to, like growing up, I was always like, oh, don't ask me my testimony. I felt insecure about my testimony. Now you have to understand um, I grew up going to church, so I'd be in youth groups, and I'd go to, I was at a Christian school, we'd have chapel, and in those contexts, they invite a lot of people to come talk to the kids who have very dramatic testimonies. And I, I don't know what it was, but just over time, I started thinking, well, mine's kind of lame, I, there's no drama in my story. And I started to feel insecure about that. Am I the only one who's ever felt that? Okay, I heard a no, so I'm going to trust that I'm in good company here. Um, I, you maybe, hopefully you never did this. I remember like people would ask me, Jonathan, what's your testimony? And I'd like try to make it more dramatic. Um, and I'd be like, you know, I, well, I used to steal puppies from, <laughs> from orphan children. And, uh, and I saw a blinding light from heaven and I heard the voice of Jesus and I gave up my puppy stealing ways and now I'm following Jesus. Um, I never, I never made that story up, but I would like try to spice it up a little bit because I was like, it should be this dramatic. I turned my life around and gave it to Jesus. Because for me growing up, this word repentance, it, like it needed to be this very dramatic thing I felt to be convincing. The more dramatic, the better. If you've ever felt that way, I think this story is a good one for us today. Jesus is gonna tell a story about repentance Uh, And I think it's going to help us reframe our testimony because what he's going to talk about is what leads a person to turn to God and more specifically, what doesn't lead a person to turn to God. And what we'll find out in the story is it's not actually this dramatic thing. And he goes in a different direction with it. So Luke chapter 16, let's look at this story um, as we've done a few times here. I'm just going to read it without comment and uh, then we'll come back and I'll make a bunch of comments. (laughs) Luke 16, this is story number 10. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died. The angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. 
Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember, in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered then, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Pray with me. Lord, we want to understand this. Uh, You've obviously put some truth in here. There's truth in its wildest form in this story. So we ask that you would use it to shape us, allow it to sit in our heads and in our hearts form something in us. We ask that your will be done in us through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Now remember, goal with these stories uh, is that we're we're chewing on them. It takes some time. It takes some thought. And so uh, I'm going to give you some background. I'm going to give you some of my reflections. But remember, the goal is not that Jonathan reflect on these stories, but that we all do it together. So I want you to engage with these. And I'm going to give you an exercise towards the end of how you can reflect on this story. But first, let me give you a little bit of context. Um, This story takes place in the middle of a whole bunch of teaching that Luke records Jesus doing, right? And uh, it's a long section of teaching full of parables and illustrations. And in all of it, we see Jesus pulling like themes and threads that his listeners would have understood into the teaching to reveal kind of here's who I am and here's why I come. It's a a masterclass in just kind of connecting with the audience that Jesus is doing. But it also, we need to acknowledge, because it is is so connected to his listeners that there might be some themes or threads that are lost to us. 2,000 years later, they may not be self-evident, okay? That is the case here. There's one very important thing to know about the story that is not evident in the text. And if we don't know this one fact about the story that Jesus tells, it's going to lead us to some wrong conclusions. For example, One of the conclusions we might make about the story is that Jesus here is attempting to teach us about the afterlife. In fact, if you read commentaries, I've read a bunch of them on this, about half of them, like make conclusions, theological statements about the afterlife based on this parable. And you can see why. Classic picture, like it's what we all carry around in our head, right? That, that we die, and then there's like this really good place where the good people get all these good things, and then there's this really bad place and good, because those bad people deserve to be tormented, and that's where they go. Here's what I'm going to say. There's this one detail, not self-evident in the text, but when we see it, we will have to conclude this very important truth about the story. The purpose of the story is not to teach about the afterlife. And it is a real reach for anybody to make theological assertions about the afterlife from this story. Now, there's two reasons that I will say that. 
Um, the, the second is because of that fact that we'll get to in a minute. But the first is just this. Like, can you see how what Jesus is doing is he's, he is using his listeners' common understanding as the afterlife as the setting for the story. But this is what we have to realize. The setting of the story isn't the point. The ending of the story, that is the point. Now, we'll come back to the ending in a second, but let's just observe something here. If I was talking to you and I said, let me tell you a story. God dies, he goes, the pearly gates stands before Peter. Um, And then I went on to tell you the story about this guy interacting with Peter. Would you assume that I am making a doctrinal statement about the true nature of heaven, that there are gates of pearl and like St. Peter's up there with a clipboard like a divine bouncer? Would you assume that doctrinally that's what I believe? Well, of course not. You would understand that that is just a commonly accepted picture of what heaven is like, and I'm using that as the setup for the real point of the story, which would somehow be the interaction between this guy and Peter. I think that is what Jesus is doing here. And from an interpretive perspective, it's unfair to treat the setting of the story as doctrine when clearly, very clearly, I would say, the ending of the story is what matters most to Jesus. That's really what he's driving at. So he sets up the story with uh, what his listeners commonly believed about the afterlife. And this was true. Jews and Gentiles alike kind of had this picture. Uh, For the Gentiles, the Greek word for the afterlife is Hades. That's the one he uses here. For the Jews, it was Sheol. And what they both believed is it was comprised of these two areas. The, The Jews believed that there was this good place called Abraham's bosom, which we translate in this passage, Abraham's side. Um, And then there's this place of torment. And so Jesus just kind of uses that commonly held picture because his listeners understood that. It's not fair to assume that's a doctrinal claim. In the same way, incidentally, uh, we see Jesus do this a lot when he talks about the afterlife. Like when Jesus uses the word hell or what we translate as hell in English, what he's usually using is the word Gehenna. Um, Now, Gehenna is an actual place. It's right outside of Jerusalem. It's a valley. And years before Jesus came along, uh, there was some horrible stuff that happened there, like child sacrifice to the god Molech. And so in Jesus' day, this valley was just where they dumped like all the trash. And so, uh, you know, it was constantly on fire. It was just like smoldering with worms in fire. Right? And so you'll, you'll see that imagery come out when Jesus talks about hell. That's not a doctrinal statement, right? Like he's not saying that that place is actually hell, right? Instead, what we see Jesus doing is this. Jesus was just using an image that people understood to describe something that nobody can really picture. And I think that's what he's doing in the story as well. As his interpreters, we have to be fair to Jesus and not read intent into words that are not there. So that's one reason I would say, I don't think this is about the afterlife, but here's the other reason, and this is really the key. This is the fact that's not self-evident in the story, but it is true. The story is not original to Jesus. So the setup, all that sort of stuff, it's not original to Jesus. Why do I think he's not establishing a theology of the afterlife? Because he didn't make this up. Like he stole it, or he didn't steal it. He adapted it from a folktale that already existed. So he's using a story that everybody knew to make a new point right at the end. 
That's brilliant from a teaching perspective, right? What he adapted the story from is a popular Egyptian folktale. Uh, it, it was a story that was told in Egypt with kind of the theology of the Egyptian gods, that it was repackaged by the Alexandrian Jews, and he uses it here. Now, we understand the ancient world, like they didn't have Netflix and all that sort of stuff, um, but they were as obsessed with stories as we are, like the human heart is made for story, right? So folk tales were kind of their equivalent back then, and they would travel around the ancient world, people would hear different versions, and they would adapt them based on the region, and that's what this story is. Jesus grew up in Egypt. Remember, his family fled when he was a little boy, and he lived there uh, for many years, and he likely spent some time in Alexandria. And in Egypt, he would have heard this story. It's the story of Cy Osiris. Uh, this is a, a big legend, but it contains a small part that he's, that he's uh, bringing up here. Cy Osiris is an Egyptian magician. He was reincarnated and became the son of a childless couple because no Egyptian magicians were powerful enough to defeat this Ethiopian magician, who's kind of the villain in the story. And as the story goes, there's this episode between he and his father, a man named Setme, where they're walking along and they see the lavish funeral of a rich man. And then they see this like very poor, unattended funeral of a, uh, like a, a beggar. Uh, and his father says to his son, it's better to die rich. And his son says, no, that's not true. And so he takes him, to prove his point, to the afterlife, to the underworld. And in the underworld, they see that the poor man who had no one at his funeral has ascended to the side of the god of the underworld, the Egyptian god of the underworld, and the rich man is experiencing utter torment in the afterlife. Now, the Alexandrian Jews, Alexandria's in Egypt, Jesus likely spent time there. Um, they adapted this story and had their own version, and it even appears in their Talmudic writings that predate Jesus. In their version, the story is of a rich tax collector named Barmajan. Um, and this guy died at the same time as a very poor rabbi or a teacher of the law. And in the afterlife, the poor rabbi is taken to Abraham's side. And here's the part that they added in their story, where he walks along these crystal clear streams, drinking his fill. And the rich uh, tax collector is tormented in the afterlife, dying of thirst, desperate for a drink, but he has no water. So you see what Jesus is doing. He takes these stories that people commonly had heard, and he's basically saying, listen, you know the story. Rich guy, poor guy, they both die in the afterlife. Their experience is the reverse of what they got on earth. And his listeners would have said, yes, we know that story. We love that story. Are you going to tell us that story? And Jesus tells them that story and then hits them with the punchline. Then hits them with the thing that sets his story apart from all of the other folktales. And that is the point of his story. The rich man. He begs to have Lazarus, which, by the way, is the only character in one of Jesus' parables who is given a name. Uh, he begs to have Lazarus raised from the dead so that his family will repent. And Abraham, in this context, says, well, even if, even if a man named Lazarus is raised from the dead, some people still will not repent. Jesus tells that story. A few days later, this happens from John 11. 
Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I, know, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So this story it basically was a prophecy in that a few days later, Jesus raised from the dead a man named Lazarus, the only name given to any character in one of Jesus' parables. He predicted it. And he also predicted this, that some people would not even care that he raised a man dead for four days from later in that chapter. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked, here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. You do not realize it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. <laughs> that section of scripture, I, stunning. It gives me chills every time I've read it. I've probably read it a hundred times. I, like to me, if you raise someone from the dead who's been dead for four days, I'm on your team. Like, I don't, like, what, what do you stand for? I'm with you. That is the most amazing miracle that you could do. The guy was dead for four days. But these guys, they saw that miracle with their own eyes, and their response was, should we let him keep doing this? Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone, in this case named Lazarus, rises from the dead. Oof. That's what this parable is about. It's about repentance. It's about the people who weren't going to listen to Jesus no matter what he did. It's not about the afterlife. It's prophecy that was really fulfilled days later. And it is about how even miracles won't convince some of us to repent. What do we do with this? Um, how do we let this shape us? Well, I want you to think about that. I, here's maybe an observation. Um, like this word repent, I've used it quite a bit. This word repent has some baggage, doesn't it? Like the word repent has probably been overused by very religious people and it's distorted the meaning a little bit. So it probably has a connotation that might be slightly different than the true definition of the word. When I hear the word repent, what comes to my mind, just being honest, growing up in church, is like I, I hear that word as we need to stop sinning and start living right. Repent. That's kind of what I associate that with. 
Um, And if you think of it that way, then this is a story about a rich man who was really disobedient. And he should have shaped up long before. Um, And he's hoping that Lazarus being raised from the dead will get his brothers to shape up and stop sinning. But I I don't know that that actually fits this story. Can we observe something here? Uh, Do you see how the rich man, this character, is not particularly sinful, at least not in the traditional sense of the word. He's not like this wicked man who's doing horrible things. He's rich. He's oblivious to the suffering around him. Um, He's not really interested in the ways of God, um, but he's not particularly bad. He's not particularly evil. It's just he and his brothers, they're comfortable, right? They're just comfortable. Life is working out for them. It's pretty good. And so the fact that Jesus doesn't cast him as an awful sinner, I think it, it challenges us. I don't think he's using the word repent in that way. The Greek word we translate repent is metanoia. Um, it's not exactly a behavioral word. There's some implications to that, but it is a little bit more of a mental word. It has to do with how you think, what you believe. Uh, it's about our attitude and our thought processes. It's about changing your mindset. And so I think the way he's using it in this story is not so much about stopping sinning, but it is more to mentally adopt God's beautiful dream for humanity. You know, all this stuff, and we've been studying a lot of it this last year, is that the prophets have said about, like, this is what you were created for. This is what God has always longed for with his people. Repentance is kind of that attitudinal change to say, yeah, I'm going to align with that. I see that beautiful thing that God has for us is is actually really good, and I want that. And so the problem with the rich man and his brothers is not like that they're sinful in the traditional sense of the word, like they're doing a lot of wrong things. No, it, it was just kind of the way they thought about the world is they had this comfortability that they weren't really interested in God's ways because they're so comfortable with the way things are. And so what Jesus points out in this story is this, what won't motivate repentance? What won't motivate repentance is first miracles and then uh, fear of the torment of hell. And we know that because the guy, his request is this, would you raise Lazarus from the dead? Because if somebody sees that, surely they'll say, yes, I want what God has for me. And then when Lazarus goes to my brothers, can he tell them about how scary and awful hell is? Because if they just knew that, then surely they'd be like, yeah, I want what God has for me. And Abraham says, no, it's not going to work. He doesn't say no because he can't do it, but he says that just won't work. He says, listen, if the beauty of God's kingdom of love and mercy and justice that's given by Moses and the prophets, if that picture doesn't turn your heart a little bit towards God, then the most dramatic miracle in the world won't get the job done. Neither will the uh, scary warnings about hell. Does that shock you at all? It shocks me a little bit. Um, Like, I, I don't know if you've ever felt this. I've had moments where I've been like, God, if only you would do like a bona fide miracle, like something that nobody can argue with. Like just do something amazing and surely everyone will believe in you. And I've also had the other thought, like, you know, God, if hell is a real place, man, if only you'd like just re- reveal hell to us, then that would be so scary, we'd all follow you. And here's Jesus, God incarnate, saying, yeah, that." That's not actually how it works. That's not ever how it's been. That's never been the motive that you think it is. 
even the most dramatic miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead, that will be a small inconvenience for the comfortable mind to dismiss. I think this gives us some clarity about repentance. When he uses this word, he's talking about turning towards the beauty of God's vision for us. He's talking about uh, having your eyes captured by the, this beautiful vision of what humanity can be about. He's not talking about turning away from the scariness of hell. That's not how Jesus thinks about it. He's also not talking about turning to God because he's wowed us with a miracle. I would maybe describe it this way. Here's three statements that I think kind of encapsulate what he's talking about here. Jesus is saying this, the vision of God's kingdom of love, mercy, and justice stands alone as worthy. It's worth it. God does not need a miracle to prove or justify the wisdom of his ways, nor does he need a terrifying hell to make it more appealing to us. Think about those statements for a second. Like when you really see the, the kingdom of God as Jesus describes it. Like this kingdom of abundant grace where God sees us as we are with all of our issues and says, you're mine and I love you. And then he calls us to this kingdom of love where every human life is valued. And there's interconnectedness with one another where the flourishing of all matters And then he calls us to his justice where these broken things that we live with, that that our lives become about making them right because that's what the the Savior does. He redeems and he reconciles things to himself. Things that aren't as they should be, he makes them right and he invites us into that process. And when you really understand the kingdom and the way that Jesus talks about it, you know, even if he never did a miracle, that kingdom... (laughs) It is quite simply the most amazing and beautiful way of life imaginable to humans. It is the best we can experience. And when we really understand that kingdom, then we realize this, it is not the scary torment of hell that makes the kingdom appealing. That's not how Jesus thinks about it. Like independent of hell, God's ways are still the most amazing and beautiful way of life possible. The ways of love and reconciliation and mercy. And yet even so, you know, I feel it. The the silliness of this rich man is in us all. God, show us a miracle to convince us that, like, we should receive your love. Or God, convince us hell is really scary to convince us The the grace you have for us is worth trusting. Jesus is saying, that stuff has never worked the way you guys think it does. Real repentance is not about miracles or threats of eternal torment. It's about the goodness and the worthiness of Jesus and his kingdom. And so I think one of the lessons that maybe he's hoping the religious leaders will get from this is simply this. We know what we need to know right now to repent. You know, they were constantly like, give us another sign, prove something to us, show us you're for real. He's like, no, listen, you guys, if this picture of God's kingdom is not interesting to you, then, you know, another miracle is not going to get the job done. Miracles are great. Hell's really scary. 
But at the end of the day, it's not what leads to repentance. And that brings me back to our testimony. Our story of repentance. You know that we use that word testimony in the church a lot of times to talk about that first time that we turn towards Jesus. Um, you know what that story is really about? This is what I wish I could have told my younger self. I maybe would have been less insecure about this. That story is not really about all the dramatic stuff that we turned from. It's not what that story is about. That story is not really about all the miraculous things that God did to get our attention. That's not what that story is about. It's not even really about escaping a scary hell. That's not what your story is about. That story is about what we found, right? That story is about finding this God who is full of grace for us, who sees us as we are and says, you're mine, I love you. And also redeems us and creates us and recreates us into what we always were created to be. It's about finding the most beautiful and the most precious thing in all the world, the kingdom of Jesus. That's what your testimony is about. And the point is not to have some dramatic testimony. The point is just to keep finding it, to keep writing it, to keep turning, to keep repenting and embracing this vision that God has for humanity. Let me give us an exercise to do this week just to reflect, or a repentance exercise maybe. Um, Here's what I want you to do. Take 15, 30 minutes, that tops just a little bit of time this week. And I want you to go sit somewhere with this story. And I want you to read through it once, noticing a couple of things. First, I want you to notice uh, the anguish of this guy, because I relate to this on some level. He's like, if only I knew when I was alive, if only my brothers knew. Um, I I felt that before, but also we need to notice the response of Abraham who basically says to him, you knew enough. Like, Like you knew what this kingdom thing was. You knew enough. And then I want us to just sit in this question. When it comes to God's kingdom, what is something I know, but maybe I've been too comfortable to step into? What's something that I know, like God has this thing for me, but I, I just have been like putting it off, kicking the can down the road. Not yet, maybe some other time. And I want you to sit with that question for a few minutes. And here's the catch. And I want you to assume that the Holy Spirit's going to talk to you. So whatever enters your mind in that next 15 minutes, I want you to just take the risk and assume that that is God in some way speaking to you. And, you know, we check it with other people, and I would encourage you that whatever enters your mind as you ask that question with God, write it down and go to someone who's wise and who loves Jesus and say, hey, does that sound like the Holy Spirit to you? And just check it, right? Like, you know what the Holy Spirit sounds like. The Holy Spirit is not like that shaming, you know, get your act together voice. That's us. That's how we talk to ourselves. The Holy Spirit talks to us, and his voice is full of grace and mercy He's constantly drawing us and casting a vision of what life could be like if we trusted the love of God fully. That's the Holy Spirit's voice. And so when you hear something, assume it's the Holy Spirit, write it down, confirm it, and then reorder and reorganize everything in your life around it. That's repentance. Step into it. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, take what you know, take those things that are like the ways that God is drawing you forward and embrace them now. 
That's the repentance he's talking about. And I think he makes a good point. We don't need a miracle to prove that it's wise to step into this beautiful, amazing life he has for us. We also don't need a scary hell waiting to swallow us up. Like, like honestly, God's kingdom is the best life imaginable. It's not just better than eternal torment and hell. I mean, it is. It's also better than the American dream. It's better than any human dream that has ever been invented. This kingdom of God is the center of our lives. His way of mercy and love and justice, it is objectively better in every way. And even if he did no miracles, even if there was no hell, it still is the only life worth having. So repent. Step into it. What is that thing that you know you've been putting off? Let me pray for us and commission us to this exercise. Lord, we see that there's something you're drawing us to. And we trust that you still speak. So we ask that in this upcoming week that you would just clarify what that is. That you would draw our gaze and capture our hearts with the beauty of this vision that you have for humanity. Let us get caught up in that amazing story and let us have the courage to reorganize and reorder and repurpose our lives to align behind what your dream is for us. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you for the beauty of your vision for us. Help us to see it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.